Well, good evening on this Good Friday. Glad you came and spent a little time here with us worshiping. We always think in terms of Sunday being the big day, you know, that's the Easter and the resurrection. But I've always been a little partial to, um, to Good Friday services, especially growing up Protestant. <clears throat> I grew up not really celebrating this. We did Easter sunrise services. How many of you remember those? How many of you remember they were typically the coldest morning of the spring? I have stood outside to try to see the sun coming up in blinding snowstorms. I didn't see it for two or three days later. And when someone back there thought maybe it would be a good thing if we shifted it. And you know, since we did that, and, and it was mostly for my own comfort, uh, I've, gotten, I've gotten real partial to these Friday services because this is really helpful kind of tying us back to the reality of what we're going to celebrate on Sunday. Does everyone understand how easy it is to take for granted what happened on Sunday if you do not remind yourself of Friday? When Nate's prayer, the opening prayer, he said, um, you know, it seems, it seems funny to call it good. It's a great book by Philip Yancey called What's So Amazing About Grace. Have any of you ever read, read that? I thought, I've always thought there ought to be a, a book written, What's So Good About Good Friday? You know, what's so good about it? What is so good about this day? Why call it good? Well, we call it good because we know the end of the story. But if we roll it back a little bit, we realize that it was on this day, traditionally, depending on how you, how you read it, because um, there's a few things that aren't all that clear. Starting yesterday, yesterday Thursday, uh, would have been that day when Jesus was with his disciples in the upper room where he washed their feet. How many have been keeping up with the readings? Yeah, good. I, I knew we printed some of those for a reason. Um, that's when it, the feet were being washed and where John, if you read John's discourse, he he, puts, he, he gives a whole lot of room to what happened on that evening. He tells us all kinds of things. In the, in the conversations and prayers, a prayer of Jesus is that we get nowhere else. But there was a lot going on because Jesus realized this was his last moment. He was the only one who knew that was what was about to occur to him and to you and how many of you know it also occurred to the Father? That he, that he was the one who probably suffered the most. Jesus was the only one, and so he was giving to his disciples the last. It was in that night that he, he broke the bread and gave the cup and said, this is my body that's, going, that's broken for you. This is my blood that will be shed for you. And I'm sure the disciples in that room were scratching their head, thinking, what is he talking about when they were mere hours away from that reality? That was the night he went into the garden to pray, where it, it, the scripture tells us, whereas he began to pray under such 
stress that there were like great drops of blood. We, we talked last week about, about the blood, about the life being in the blood and how the blood is beginning to be shed, not at the cross, but in the garden. How as he prays for you and he prays for himself and he prays to the Father that, that the strength is there to go through what he's facing and the sins of the world are beginning to accumulate are beginning to fall on his heart and on his shoulders and on his mind. I wonder if, if there's a tape, if at some point in that, that prayer, that time of agonizing prayer when his, when his disciples were snoozing, not understanding at all what was about to occur here, and Jesus is praying, I wonder if on the tape it will show the moment in time when the sins of Tom Chisholm begin to pass and settle on him. I kind of hope it's not recorded. Or, or if it is, it's like they do on television where they blur it out, you know, because some of us probably have to be blurred. And it's the same night when Judas, who had been one of the privileged few to see Jesus in, in his most intimate moments, who knew Jesus as well as anyone decided that he wasn't going to play the game anymore that Jesus just wasn't handling it as a Messiah and he turns him in and that's the night of the betrayal that's the night when the trials began first with the uh, first with the Sanhedrin with the with the uh, uh, religious leaders and then to Pilate as the as the night is going through and and the abuse has begun and the beatings have started the the early morning the crown of thorns pressed on his back and the and the the lashes are given as this this totally absolutely illegal trial it was illegal to have these trials in the middle of the night it was illegal to try him without without proper preparation the whole thing was a sham but they were in a rush because the Passover was about to come and we must keep the Passover and and that's the day and then it would have been early in the morning when they finally put, some people think it was just the cross beam on, of the cross on Jesus' shoulders, already weak from loss of blood, from beating, from being up all night, hasn't eaten anything since the, since the, the evening before when, when he was with the disciples. There's, um, there's weakness coming, but they put the sh this on his back with two other two other men, two criminals, and they began walking him from the place of trial up. The place is lined. Jerusalem is packed with people who are there for Passover. They're not there for this spectacle. They're there for Passover. But they're watching, and what they don't know they're watching is they're watching the one and final and total Lamb of God who is about to take away the sins of the world, and nobody gets it. This is the day when they laid him. We, we, we've just sung these songs, you know, where they laid him on that cross and they ran the nails. They, they drove the nails through his wrists and through his feet and set him there. And for six hours, as all of the universe, all of the attention of the universe was concentrated in this one place as Jesus hung there on the cross. It's just something to contemplate. I, I've got to where I just kind of like this because it brings me back 
to a reality of realizing of exactly what it did take to allow me to go free. That everything that I just talked about, you know, that there's any one of us, it, it, it should have been us. It should have been me. But Jesus, the one person who didn't deserve what he was getting, the one person in all of history, the only one who could have stood before God absolutely blameless, is also the only one who could take and absorb the sins of the world. There's something about this night, there's something about humanity that I, I think that this, this night begins to answer. There are, there are questions that, that resonated humanity and they've done this for a long time. This isn't, this isn't anything new, but I think humanity suspects, uninformed humanity suspects that there is someone or that there's something out there that has made us that that by inference has made this whole world and by inference has made us all. Somewhere embedded in, in the human psyche is this knowledge that something is there. We at least have some kind of suspicion that we're not here by mistake or by accident or by, by whimsy. That, that we're, we're in this place for a purpose. And even those... Um, even those who ignore those suspicions, or you know, those who would deny them, I, I've thought I've thought a lot about this. You know, that that even those who would deny the existence of a someone or a something, that that can't deal with the thought that that there is a, a, an intelligence and a power behind this universe and behind my life who wants to deny that and, and to say this is an accident or say this is whimsy, that even they have traces of their, of their creator, the thumbprint of God in their lives. Because even those people would have some basic, some basic agreement that there is a right and there's a wrong. That they would agree with me, if, even if I come from a place of, of saying I believe with all of my heart there is a God who created us. There is a God who, who made us and put us here and interacts with us. They would come from the point of view of saying there's no such thing. But there's some things we would agree on. They would agree with me that it's wrong to take a life. That it's wrong to steal. That it's wrong to mistreat the weakest in, in, our, in our world and in our society. In fact, I think they would agree with me that as human beings, we have some responsibility for the, for the, uh, the children, the, the, the homeless. The, you know, that there's, there's, there's this place of some agreement. But the place I, I think I have to come to, you know, what I think is the fingerprint of God, I would, I would have to ask them and say, why is it wrong to kill? Who says it's wrong to kill? I mean, if there's no authority, if, there's no, if it's only man making up his own rules, well, it's just wrong. Have you ever talked to someone that, you, that said they were an atheist? I don't know that I've ever really met one. But I've talked to a number that, that said that they were. And there are, there are things that we basically agree on. And, and it's on that, that there is good in the world, that, that people do good things, ought, we ought to do good things. And my question is always, why? Why should we do good? Who cares 
if we do it. If it's all over at the moment of my last breath, who cares how I led my life or what I did to people while I lived it? Why not live it to my own event? See, what I think all of that is, that agreement that there's something out there, is this thumbprint of God that nobody can escape. Because to walk away from any of that is deviancy. It, it breaks down society. It, it tears down families. And, and, and everybody instinctively knows that there's something out there. Well, the, well, the question begins to come, then if, if there's someone out there, then everyone says, how do I connect with him or her or it or whatever it is? How do I get to know them? And, and if, if there is someone out there, what, what are they like? And, and what... Uh, how, how do I get them into my world? How, how do I get this God of creation? See, all of these things rattle around through all of humanity. And um, what we don't realize and what begins to be answered on this evening is that God's been asking a very similar question for a very long time. We're asking, how can I get God into my world? This whoever he is, how, how, can, I, how can I get him to pay attention to me? And what we don't know is God's been asking almost the same question. How can I get them to pay attention to me? How can can I get them into my world? See, because that was God's intention from the very beginning. He didn't just fling all of this out into space as as the grand experiment, wondering... um, you know, wondering what will become of us all as, as a lot of people. This was a God who was intent on having relationship with what he and who he had created. He was interested in you and he was interested in me. But, but there was, how, how many of you know there's been a little misbehavior? That would be a real modern word for sin. Um, there's been a little misbehavior. We have done some things. In fact, some of the things we've done have been downright precious to us that, that have, have, have begun to disallow this conversation with God. It's us that's begun to set up these barriers and, and all, the, all the time claiming the right to do so. And, and so those barriers come up and they're not of God's creation. Here's God... <laughs> My voice is changing. Here's God, finally. <laughs> things, funny things happen around your birthday. Here's God wanting to have relationship with his creation. And here's his creation seeming to do everything to keep out of relationship with him. And, and the barriers come up and the barriers come up and the barriers come up. And there's, there's distance between us and the one who loves us the most. So what is, what's, God's, what's God's solution? He's got a problem. How many, of you ever, how many of you knew that God has a problem? You're it. You're his problem. And you're a problem because he loves you. How many of you have discovered that the people you love often become your problem? If you didn't love them, if you didn't love them, it wouldn't matter, would it? But the very fact that I love them, that I care about them, that, that there's a pain involved here, it, it just means they own a little, bigger, a little bigger chunk of me than anyone else. 
God has that problem. God has that problem with you. Now, what I want to do here for just a few minutes, because I can't spend the time uh, I'd love to, because each of these is a sermon uh, in itself, but I won't. I've, I've got to stick right to the, I've got to stick to the text, all right? If it looks like I'm reading, it's probably be because I am. The Bible records that on this, on this day, in that six-hour span from the first nail that was driven into Jesus' wrist to the point where they came ready to run the, the, the spear up into his side to see if he was in fact dead, that Jesus spoke seven times. This is real standard Good Friday fare. I've never heard a sermon on the seven sayings of Jesus just stick around sooner or later. I haven't preached one here, but I've preached them. Seven times Jesus spoke, but in those seven times we have a revelation of what Jesus was doing in order to knock the barrier down that stood between us and God. Our barrier created by us, but that we were absolutely helpless to remove on our own. We built it, and then we couldn't tear it down. It got too big. It got too thick. It got too old. It, it got too high. That we, we stone after stone, uh, lie after lie, you know, moment after moment, as, as we built that thing, God understood that, but he loved what was on the other side of the wall. And he determined he was going to do something about it. Asking that question, how do I get them in my life? He said this, I will go to them. I'll cross the barrier. And then I will break, break down the wall from their side. I won't come barging in from my side, but I will become one of them. And in becoming one of them, I will earn the right to stand in the place between God and man, to stand there to tear down what I so ably built and bring it to an end and then invite them to begin crossing to me. That's Good Friday. Now, Easter, we're going to do it again. We're going to talk about seven things Jesus said after he rose from the dead. How many of you have ever heard that sermon? I've never preached it. It's a, it's a brand new one. These are the seven things he said before he died. We want to talk about seven things because first, in order for Jesus to get us where he was, how many of you know he had to deal with our stuff? How many of you got stuff? Yeah, four of you. Yeah, like I'm not your pastor. <clears throat> we got the stuff. He had to deal with the stuff. He couldn't bring us across the barrier still carrying our stuff. Because if he would have allowed that, does everyone understand that heaven would be exactly like it is here? How many of you want to go to heaven with it like that? You raise your hands too quickly. Yeah. I mean, it, wouldn't it be the same thing? We just all get to heaven with our stuff. There's still hatred. There's still anger. There's still prejudice. We still get in fights with one another. There's still rebellion. There's still lying. There's still lust. There's still, I mean, maybe there wouldn't be murder because, like, where would you go? You know? I don't, I'll have to work on that. But does everyone understand... We're going to be in his presence, perfect 
in all ways. He had to deal with our stuff. So here's the first. The first thing that's recorded is recorded in Luke. When he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He has just been stood up in place, and he's looking out over this crowd. Who is he talking about? I mean, he has a lot to pick from, doesn't he? There's the Romans who just drove, just drove the spikes into his wrist. Or there's Pilate, who probably wasn't there, just stayed in his, his palace. You know, there's the Romans. How about the Jews? Let's, how, how about, the, how about the, the religious Jews? Let's, who, who should we? How about his disciples? Maybe he should forgive his disciples because they're nowhere to be seen. These big talking guys are nowhere to be seen. The only people standing at the cross are some women and John, young John. Everybody else has hightailed it out of there. Who's he going to forgive? Who does he need to forgive? Who needs forgiveness in this story? See, this is kind of the biggest gift of all. He starts with the biggest gift. Do you realize that if he had not forgiven you at that place, that all that he'd said before and all that happened after would be absolutely pointless because we would be in exactly the same place we had been before? Does everyone understand that? The forgiveness allowed us uh, the clean slate to, to walk into his presence forgiven. If he hadn't forgiven us, nothing else would have mattered. But from the very beginning, Jesus forgave us, and the forgiveness was for everyone. It was a blanket for those who stood in front of him, who, those who had gone before, and those who would be born in the years long after this date. He was forgiving it all because forgiveness was going to become the lubricant of the, of the kingdom of heaven. That's what moves this forward. He forgave. The second thing he said was to, the, was to one of these criminals. There was an argument started. One of the criminals is railing on Jesus, giving him a hard time and said, if you're such a big shot, why don't you get down from the cross and take us with you while you're at it? But on the other side is this other, is this other uh, guy who, who knows he's there and deserves to be there. And he tells, basically, he tells the other one, don't you understand what, what's going on here, the magnitude of this moment. And he turns to Jesus, and in this moment of incredible revelation and insight, he asks, he asks Jesus, um, remember me. Will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? Do you, do you understand what that would have taken? Here's Jesus hanging there on the cross just like he is. He's not doesn't look like he's coming down anytime soon. He's, he's been badly beaten. He's been bruised. He's hanging there naked. He's, you know, there's not a lot of hope. And yet this man has enough insight and understanding to look at Jesus and, and know that there is a kingdom coming and that Jesus is the king of that kingdom. When you come into your kingdom, will you remember me? How many of you know that's a pretty good question? Wouldn't it have been awful if this death, even with a resurrection, if this death marked the wiping clean of Jesus' memory of all of those people for whom he had died? If he would have come out of the grave totally, 
forgotten, that, that it, would have, it would have wiped out the past. But he didn't forget. And, and what he said was, Assuredly, I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. We'll talk a little bit about that on Sunday morning. This, this criminal is the first benefactor of God's long-held desire to bring his family home. The first one through the door who comes in by the blood of Jesus, who comes in by the new sacrifice, is a man who had lived his life not for others but totally for himself, who at the last possible moment turns and repents and looks to the king and Jesus says to him today today you'll be with me in paradise he's saying this is exactly you got it this is exactly what all of this is about is it kind of nice to know that wherever you are today that you can say Lord will you remember me is it nice to know that he will today he says, today you can get this right. Today you can get this fixed. Today. The third thing he says is to John, and this is only recorded in the Gospel of John. Now maybe he's the only one who really heard it, except for his mother. As I said, standing at the cross was his mother, another Mary, uh, the, the, the uh, 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 wife of Clopas, whoever Clopas was, he got in the Bible. Um, and then Mary Magdalene and then John. They're standing there as the family, mourning, watching the execution. And he, Jesus looks and he sees his mother and the disciple whom he loved, uh, John says, standing by. And he says first to his mother, woman, behold your son. He's not talking about himself. He's talking about young John. And he said to that disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the Bible says, that disciple took her into his own home. It's an amazing thing. See, um, it's written by this, this person who experienced. John was probably stunned by this brand new responsibility. He's a young man. He's probably still a teenager at, at this point, speculated because he lived to be a very old man, um, as tradition tells us. But in the midst of, of Jesus' pain and, and the distraction of all the taunts and injustice and everything that was going on, Jesus thinks of his mom. A pretty human thing to do and so John one of his most trusted lieutenants is now being entrusted with his mother's welfare what a story we think what would you be thinking about at this point see here's Jesus very connected to his responsibilities even in 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 death he's connected to his responsibilities part of what I like about Good Friday is it always ties me back to our responsibilities in the kingdom there's a lot of teaching out there that would let me go free no free with no responsibility Jesus paid it all all to him I owe what people think that means is I'll never have to do another thing and yet here, Jesus on the cross, I am still responsible, and I will be responsible for you, son. Your mom, this is your son. Son, this is your mom. So first, he didn't, he didn't shirk his responsibility, even in the urgency of his own pain. Second, how many of you know John was going to benefit from Jesus' sacrifice? 
in taking in Mary, this one who had been this intimate observer, received, had received private access to Jesus for a long time. But now, do you understand with privilege comes what? Jesus takes his responsibility and he moves it to John. John's privilege, the one of being the one who Jesus trusted, comes responsibility. How many of you want to be trusted by Jesus? Yeah, so you're going, yeah, that's a trick question. Yeah, I, I, do you, I mean, I want to trust him. He's been trust, totally trustworthy in my life. Anybody found that Jesus is not trustworthy? See, he's been totally trustworthy for me. Wouldn't it be wonderful if I could be totally trustworthy for him? If he could depend on me, you know what I mean? Not to make my own way. I, I get Jesus in my life, get my fire insurance all paid up, and then I still keep trying to create my own reality and think I can live in it. Wouldn't it be wonderful if he could trust me and say to me, Tom, this responsibility that has been mine is now yours. You thought this was going to be, you saw all these wonderful things, thought it was going to be fun and games, and now with it comes responsibility. That's what Good Friday is about. Mom, your son, son, your mom. It's all about responsibility. Forgiveness is not a get-out-of-jail-free card. It is a call to service. Does everyone hear me? All right, four. This one, it gets hard. This is from Mark's gospel, though it's also in Matthew. When Jesus is coming to the end of this, um, there's darkness, uh, we're being told, that there's dark, supernatural darkness coming on the land. This isn't normal. And, and it, it, it's, it's the universe reacting to what's happening here. The, the hosts of hell are loose. They've been whispering in people's ears. They've been moving people's hands for days now. They've been working to bring this to a point where they could destroy the only threat to the kingdom of darkness that really ever existed. There's, there's darkness. There's darkness everywhere. And in the sixth hour, just before Jesus is to die, he says, he, let me just read it. It says, when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. So three hours this is going on. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Which translated is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is quoting from the Psalms. I think it's Psalms 22. I'd have to look that up. He's quoting this psalm, this lament from the deep past has come on him. And something is occurring here that starts to give us the idea of what our stuff is starting to cost him. Here's Jesus. And not only just costing Jesus, how many of you know it's costing the Father? At this point, it's really costing the Father. This is not going to be a cheap transaction. This isn't going to be light stuff. In order for God to get into our lives so that he could deal with our sin and all of its impact, something was going to have to, to capture that sin and then dispose of it. Like a giant sin sponge, Jesus was, had absorbed all of it into himself. 
He took all of our dysfunction and our rebellion, our selfishness and our prejudice, our habits and our omissions, our insecurities and our fears, our depravity, our debauchery, our meanness and our darkness. He took it all as he absorbed it and as he took it upon himself and, and be, he became, as Paul would write later, he became sin for us. He, he didn't just offer a bucket to carry away our sin. The Bible says he became the bucket. He, he became sin. And here's the father who has never, ever been out of communion with his son. But now his son is something that he has never, even the father has never seen before. In one human being is this spectacle of this unabashed wickedness. It's concentrated in one person. It's absorbed by one person. And the Father who is all holiness, who is paying this price, is looking down and he is seeing what has happened. And for the first time, Jesus, suspended between heaven and hell, does not have the sense of his Father's presence. Of all the things that could be said on this night about what was going on on that cross, this one may be the most telling of all. God, where are you? Do you remember what Jesus prayed in the garden the night before? As this thing was beginning to load, download. And he was talking from a very real place and he said to the Father. Father, if it is possible, if there's another way to do this, if there's some other way, do you wonder if maybe as he's, he's praying this prayer, Lord, if there's some other way of doing this, please let this cup pass from me. Don't make me drink it. Do you think he was thinking as much about your sin as he was about the moment when he could no longer sense God? How many of you can remember when you didn't know Jesus? I can't remember that far back. But I hear people talk of what it's like in a life completely devoid of the presence of God. And I'm here to tell you that even that was nothing like what Jesus was experiencing. My God, my God. Because that's all he'd ever been to him. My God. Why have you forsaken me? This wasn't cheap stuff. It's what it cost was a complete disconnection between father and son that had never before occurred and Jesus felt totally abandoned. God suffered the loss too. Do you wonder if, if, Jesus, if the father was saying, if this would have been recorded, my son, my son, where have you gone? Buried under the sin of the world, no longer recognizable from the, from the eyes of the father. Gone for you. Fifth thing he said was, I thirst. All this does is remind us that this was real suffering. Jesus hung there and he was, he was, uh, he was dehydrated. 
blood loss, fluid loss, the deprivation. He was at this moment very, very vulnerable and very, very human. How many of you know that your stuff makes you pretty vulnerable? I don't care what your stuff is and how well you have it hidden. Your stuff makes you vulnerable. The only way that Jesus could have had any help at this moment in time is because he couldn't get off. Go get a drink. The only way he could do this is if somebody helped him. Which they did. They took a sponge, John tells us it was on a hyssop stick, put the sour wine, which is the cheap stuff, Darren. This is two buck chuck. This is what the poor folk drank. This is what the soldiers drank. And they stuck it on a sponge and stuck it up for him to drink. And it touched, as it touched his lip, it didn't quench his thirst. Just a short time ago, uh, as my mother was dying, how grateful she was for an ice chip because she couldn't swallow, she couldn't drink water. And for an ice chip and how thankful she was. See, Jesus was being very human and in his humanity was being incredibly vulnerable. Wouldn't it be wonderful if the whole world figured out how vulnerable they were? You can't do it by yourself. You can't do it without help. You can't do it. You are thirsty and you may not even know it. Finally, six, he says it is finished. Six and seven are close together. One's, one's John's recording of the last and one is Luke's recording. He says it's finished. It's a really important thing here as it says he, after he received that sour wine, he said it's finished, and bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. And he knew, he knew that he had completely completed the task at hand. Every sin had been punished, every heart laid bare. He was dying with the assurance that the task he'd been given was totally finalized. He was not just saying, I'm finished here. He was saying that this was successfully finalized. It was concluded. It was accomplished. Everything I had been sent to do every sin every failure every sickness everything I had been sent to cover I have now taken upon myself this is part of the reason why you can share with great confidence with anybody that their sins can be forgiven that their life can change you can tell anybody that story and be absolutely confident in it because Jesus said it is finished you can be confident that your sins are forgiven First he said, he said it at the beginning of this, and then he said it's finished, it's done, it's completed, it's done, it is dealt with, it is complete. Luke records it this way, seven, Father, into your heart I commit my spirit. This was a really, this thing really kind of impacted me. This was the last time. Jesus had felt complete abandonment. But even in his abandonment, he never quit trusting God. God why would he say after he had said my God my God where are you why have you forsaken me would he then turn around and say into your hands I commit my spirit because even when he couldn't sense the father he still trusted the father he knew that behind this all was God accomplishing everything that he ever had been sent 
to do. I can trust God with the most precious thing that I possess, my soul. My soul can be trusted in him. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Are you guys going to come back and we'll finish this, this thing? See, how does God move man into his world? After the barrier we put up, how does he do it? He did it by moving into our world. He solved the problem of the wall. He did it by taking everything that the wall had been built of, all the bricks you had laid in place, he dismantled them one by one, and he owned the brick. It became his brick. Your lie became his lie. Your, your, uh, your infidelity, your, your lust, your anger, your hatred, every brick you'd put in the wall that had separated you from God, Jesus took every last one of them and said, that is now my brick. I will, take, I will take the punishment. And as he removed the bricks, does everyone understand the wall just disappeared? And now there's nothing between you and God. That's Good Friday. That's Good Friday. Now that's not all the story. Because once God dealt with our stuff, Easter morning, is about getting his stuff into us. That's what we're going to do with seven sayings on Sunday morning. This was getting our stuff out of us and getting it into him. But Easter, on Easter Sunday, the resurrection we celebrate, now his stuff can become mine. Is this pretty good news? This is really good news. This is God's, the only way that God chose to solve the problem, the solution to his very own quest. Man could now live with him, in him, for him, and through him. A transaction of cosmic importance was being handled on that rocky outcropping overlooking the, this, this backwater city of Jerusalem and nothing and no one could stop it and we are saved. We are saved because Jesus died. The wall is gone. The wall is gone. You have no excuse but to embrace everything that God ever prepared for you. We're going to sing this last song. If you stand, perfect song. But you know what? Good Friday was always traditionally about helping us really focusing down. The resurrection is, is like the, the big news. But without this night, the big news wouldn't have been so big. The resurrection wouldn't have meant anything if he hadn't dealt with the wall that was between you and God. We would have a living Savior, but no way, no way to reach him. A wonderful story to tell. We're celebrating the wall being gone. It is finished. And Lord, into your hands, we commend our spirits, our souls, our lives, and our future. We commend ourselves to you because of what you did. Let's worship and celebrate. Paul would write that the wages of sin 
are deaf. That's why you and I don't have to worry. Because Jesus began to disassemble your wall. Began to take your sin on himself. Began to pay, get paid your wages. He so completely did the job, there's nothing left to pay you. He absorbed the death in himself and instead in its place, this is Sunday morning, you get life. His shed blood becomes his shared blood. The wages of sin are death, but how does the rest of that scripture go? But the gift of God is eternal life through whom? Jesus Christ, our Lord. Does this help you with that verse? There is no death. There's, there's no death, not, not the eternal separation from God. It's done because there's nothing left. There's nothing left to punish. He punished it. He took it. This is your Good Friday. This is your story. This is why Good Friday is good. Because boy, is it a done deal. Father, we thank you for the season we celebrate how significant it is, Lord, when we come back to the core of this story and we remember again that you had nothing on your mind but me. That you were thinking of nothing but us and the wall that we had erected and the broken heart of the Father that was kept out and you had nothing on your mind, Lord, except how will I dis disassemble this wall on the behalf of my Father that he can get to those that he so desperately loves. And Jesus, you did it one drop of blood at a time, one stripe across the back at a time, one nail at a time, one taunt at a time. Lord, you did it all and we are a grateful, grateful people. Thank you, Jesus, for loving us that much. Thank you, Father, for letting Jesus love us that much. Thank you, Lord. Thank you and never let me forget. You took all my bricks. You pulled it apart and you disposed of them in the blood of eternity in order that I go free. But Lord Jesus, let me understand with that liberty comes tremendous responsibility. When you rose from the dead, Lord, it changed everything. It changed everything. And my life, Lord, is in that category. Bless these people, Father, in the next couple of days and as we reassemble to celebrate that morning father I pray it will be with such joy and such liberty of knowing God you have dealt with our stuff and now we revel in the fact that you own us lock stock and barrel we are yours and Lord what a wonderful place to be thank you father for all of these those that are traveling because of the holiday and family bless them and keep them safe and return them, Lord, may they too have the time of celebration and just recognizing Jesus really is Lord. We thank you for your goodness, Lord, and faithfulness in Jesus' precious name. Amen.
Amen. Enjoy.